You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Is it natural for Christians to talk about natural theology? Next up on Corfield Theology. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean, Pastor of Redemption Hill Church, located in the Des Moines metro. Des Moines is located in the state of Iowa, for those of you who don't know. Uh, thanks for joining this podcast once again. Cornfield Theology is a ministry of Redemption Hill Church. You can check us out at redemptionhilldsm.org. We meet at Radiant Elementary at 10 a.m. on Sunday. We'd love to, if you're in the area, come visit, uh, come worship with us. Um, it's good stuff. Uh, Cornfield Theology, we put up podcasts and uh, blogs, and we have some extra resources where we link to that we think is helpful for you. So you can check that out at cornfieldtheology.com. If you're new to the podcast, it's called Cornfield Theology because we're in Iowa and that's basically corn country. So there you have it. And we like to think about theology. We want to think well about theology. So in particular today, we want to talk about natural theology. So I brought in my friend, Kenny Ortiz. How you doing, man? Living the dream, brother. Feeling great. Living the dream. I know, man. We were just talking about fatherhood and how great, as a matter of fact, speaking of fatherhood and the importance of life, the last podcast we did together was on why we are pro-life. That's right. And uh, so if you want to check that out, Kenny gives some great insight of why you should be pro-life and uh, from a biblical perspective as well. But you know what? We could talk about it from a biological perspective. So uh, you can go to cornfieldtheology.com. And then Kenny, you got a website, man? I do theology for the rest of us.com. That sounds like a, a blog or a, a website I'd want to check out. <laughs> Absolutely. Theology for the rest of us. And man, give it, give a quick bio for those who do not know you. Give, yeah. give the rundown, man. Uh, born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Shout uh, out. That's right. Born and um, lived in several places. I was in youth ministry for several years, worked in real estate, uh, moved to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis in 2017. Uh, but I was a professor at a small college, recently just actually moved to a different school. So literally just three weeks ago, joined the faculty nice. of a different college across town. Um, I am now a, a assistant professor of history and theology at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. Nice. Uh, and also serve as a part of the admissions team. So associate director of college recruiting. So if anyone is interested in being a part of, of just a fantastic, rigorous uh, Bible-based, theologically informed, inexpensive college education uh, in the Twin Cities. I'd love to chat with you. Yeah, and uh, I'm married for two years. We got a baby daughter. She's 11 months. Such That's a joy. Awesome. And then I, I podcast and blog at uh, at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's great, man. And uh, what's the website for Bethlehem College and Seminary? People want to check it out. Yep, BCS MN like Minnesota EDUs. BCS. Bethlehem College and Seminary, bcsmn.edu. Thanks, man. I know I know several people who've gone through that undergraduate program and have benefited greatly. And obviously, they have a seminary as well. So yep. um, that's that that college and seminary has a lot to offer. I highly recommend it as well. I know I got kids who are getting older, and I'm thinking like, college? What do we do? Where do they go? That one's been on my radar. So, uh, I, you know, my oldest is only twelve. Maybe I'm thinking a little too far ahead. You got a few years. <laughs> I got a few years, but it goes quick. It goes real quick. All right. Natural theology. I reached out to you, Kenny, because you wrote a blog that I read. I'm going to read the title here and they can check it out at your website. Uh, Natural theology, 
definition, viewpoints, critics, why it matters. You posted it on May 14th, so not too long ago. And, uh, and I read it. I thought it was really insightful and helpful. And it's a topic, I think, that in our, let's just call it evangelical world, although I, have, I take some umbrage with that particular word these days. But for the sake of, you know, simplicity, let's move on. In our circles, uh, I think a lot of Christians are not familiar with natural theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hear it and they're like, what does that even mean? And you try to, what's natural, what's theology, how do these two words connect? So can you give like a 30,000 foot overview of natural theology? And we'll get into the details here in a moment, but kind of give that big definitional overview. Yeah. Uh, the simplest way to natural theology is a branch of Christian theology or several branches. This is the, this is the branch of theology that is attempting to learn about God through examining the cosmos, like the, the universe that we right, live in, right. trying to examine nature and creation and how things function. And so uh, natural f- proponents of natural theology, like myself, we, we would argue, we would say, we believe that God has revealed himself in creation, in nature, right. uh, that the attributes of God and the intentions of God are, are exhibited uh, it, to some extent in nature and creation. And then if you use your intellect to examine nature mm-hmm. and creation, you will learn a lot about God. So you do a lot of blogging and podcasting. I do the same thing at cornfieldtheology.com. And, you know, we always write for different reasons. Some things come up and there's some things we, you know, push aside for maybe a later date. Why did, why did you take your hands to the keyboard and write on this particular topic? What um, motivated that for you? Uh, great question. Almost everything I do on my website, honestly, is because I have people that ask me. That's okay, really yeah, it. Yeah. Um, there's been this kind of debate on in the Twitter sphere, if anyone yeah. I've seen it <laughs> um, around Aquinas in particular, Thomas Aquinas, yes, yes. 13th century theologian. And um, one of one of my I won't say any names. One of my one of my dear friends and heroes, really modern, a professor I had who was really influential, kind of has like an anti Aquinas flavor to him and, and yeah. makes commentary regularly. Really bashing is probably too strong of a word, but but not too, not, but not far. He really doesn't like Aquinas. Very critical. Like, He's very critical of Aquinas yeah. and he's very concerned of Christians um, following Aquinas and the way he's thinking um, Protestants specifically. And right. I, I think he's right in his concern. There are reasons to be 100%. To, right. His um, view on his stoicism and transubstantiation, his view on the sacraments. I mean, there are, there are many things Protestants can look at Aquinas and be like, nah, ain't going down that road with you, bro. Right. <laughs> uh, there are things we should reject. Absolutely. Um, but I think I think that the w- there's lots of things that um, that Aquinas contributed in theology, but the one area where he is most commonly cited, and not just by Christians in theology, but but by even secular philosophers, um, even elite. I mean, every every law student in America has studied Aquinas's understanding of law. Uh, it, it's 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 a part of uh, legal studies right. in every law school in America. So it's really transcends even Christian theology. So. Uh, Aquinas's thoughts on natural theology and what it leads to, I think are tremendously helpful and very useful for us as Protestants. And so to reject that, I think is, um, I think is odd and unhelpful. I, I really like, that's why I wanted to chime in on this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good hook for what we're going to get into is why some evangelicals reject natural theology. And obviously that comes from Aquinas, but one, one kind of a footnote here regarding church history. And one thing that's like a, a rock in my shoe and this is a why I studied early church history, actually, uh, for quite a while. And it's this. 
many uh, reformed folks, and I say reformed, I mean like reformation beyond. So you could be Baptist, mm-hmm. Presbyterian, Methodist, whatever, Lutheran. They, they think that church history began with Martin Luther in the nailing of the 95 theses on the Wittenberg chapel door. Like that's when church history began. And it's like, no, it, it, with one exception, with one exception, Augustine. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, all the reformers, which is great. You know, I love Calvin, Zwingli, I mean, right. the LinkedIn, the whole lot of them, I love them. Uh, but there's so much more in church history for us to learn from. Even if you don't agree, like if you read Augustine, you're not going to agree with everything Augustine said. Like, I'm sorry, there's things right. where there's holes in his theology that I disagree with, but we can still read him and be like, oh, you know what? He did some really good things on the Trinity. Right. Uh, we can go to other people like Irenaeus or Athanasius and so on. You know, I studied Gregory of Nyssa when I was at St. John's and there were things about Gregory of Nyssa where I'm like, yeah, dude, um, all this allegorizing going on over here. Like, I, I'm, I see how you get there. I just can't go there with you. Right. But there's some other points of his theology where I'm like, that's pretty good. Same thing with Aquinas. Mm. we can learn from him in some specific areas yep and we need to like knock it off with the you know church history began with martin luther i think it's um something i didn't mention in my blog at all and i wrote a second article just published yesterday on kind of a part two to this um specifically on natural law but like one of the things that i didn't even mention in either one of those articles is like the geneva convention in the 1950s yes you've got whatever 100 plus nations across the globe coming together to, to basically develop a contract on what is like the right way to fight war. What's, mm-hmm. what's a just war. What's the, and um, they're, they're largely relying on the, the words of Aqu- the ideas. Just that war theory. Aquinas, yeah. That yeah. Aquinas developed, you know, 700 years, not 800 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have like, when you have secular non-Christian, you know, go- lead, leaders of government from across the globe, 700 years later, utilizing your ideas, yeah. We should study those ideas and learn from them. Yeah. Even if you don't even agree with them, I would even argue. Right. They have, they've made such an impact on how society understands a particular issue. In this case, war, we should really know how they've come to the conclusions and, and what is the genesis of those, of those, you know, that, that reason, that thought Aquinas. Right. So he's worthy to talk about you, you, this. This is a helpful um, segue into another question that I have for you, Kenny which is this, uh, we're going to talk about natural law here in a moment. You just wrote about, uh, we were talking about natural theology, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And you just wrote about natural law. Can you explain the differences between the two? Cause on the one hand, they seem kind of connected, but then we can kind of parse out natural law and say, it's actually another distinct area. Right. Uh, different people would give a, you'd get a lot of different answers to this question, I think, yeah. but, but my basic natural theology is like, I'm studying the natural world to learn about God. Like what is and created. Then, right. And then one, one of the things I learn about God is his opinion of, of how things should go. In essence, the, 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 the ethics that God would endorse. Mm. And that is so natural law. So I, I, natural law is me studying nature, learning about God's attributes. And that leads me to understanding what God determines is right and wrong, which is natural law. Right. Yep. And that's a helpful distinction. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis, I think in Mere Christianity, as a matter of fact, talks about um, kind of the moral law, uh, mm-hmm. the natural law, and how like inherently we know right from wrong Yep. Uh, because that's within us. And how he gets there is another discussion for another day. But I think that's a good distinction to kind of kind of work out here. So mm-hmm. it's helpful. So we talked about natural law and church history. Um, now let's get to the question at hand uh, that we raised earlier. I'm going to circle back to it before getting into the details of of natural theology. Uh, why have some Protestants rejected natural theology? What's, what's the impulse? You already mentioned like it's coming from Aquinas. Are there other areas? 
Yeah, there, there. It's partial. I think in some some people have rejected the idea of natural theology purely because it's attached to Aquinas's name, or Aquinas largely leverages Aristotle mm-hmm. uh, in his writings. And so some people would say Aristotle was pagan. We, why would we be base you utilizing works that are from these pagan philosophers? Right. So some people would, or some people would say Aquinas was Catholic, and they would reject and like everyone was Catholic at that. Like, yeah, I mean, right. that's not really a, but some people would say in a desire to separate from the Catholic church, we should then reject any ideas that come from Aquinas, like natural theology. So that's, mm-hmm. that's part of it. Um, you don't get a lot of rejection in, like, from the reformers themselves, the first generation in the right. 16th century. Right. Uh, in, in fact, I, I would argue that Calvin relies on Aquinas's work at times, not a bunch, mm-hmm. but he does some, yeah. um, you get a little bit of in the next in the next century in the 17th century 1600s but it's not really till the late 1800s that you start getting significant pushback and then in the early 1900s it really gets steam the rejection of natural theology uh, largely because of a guy named Cornelius Van Til right uh, who I really appreciate and I really like brilliant professor theologian taught at West at Princeton and Westminster in the early 1900s right. um but it's not really like all of natural theology that Van Til and his his guys like him they're rejecting it's just a portion of it and the specific thing they're rejection they're rejecting is the idea like what is the knowledge of god that is inherent so like everyone agrees mm-hmm. like people are born with some knowledge of god mm-hmm. but to what extent can i can i pause right there and ask a question because yeah. I, as i was reading your blog i wrote this question down and it's that maybe a, a an area of theology of working out of theology that's important so if so, Aquinas said that we are not born with the knowledge of God, right? I can see why he gets there. If if the reason why is because he believes in total depravity, right? Our total depravity, we are born with a cold, dead heart. So how does how does your doctor of total depravity still allow for an inherent knowledge of who God is? The question makes sense. Yep. So the way Aquinas answers that is that we are born with a nat- with a knowledge of natural law so that mm. we, we we're born with a natural knowledge of knowing what's right or wrong but we're not born with the knowledge of god's existence but we're born with the ability to reason our way there right so aquinas would argue like the person who's not a christian they can examine nature closely enough and examine the natural order of all things and if they're objective it will re- it, they will reason their way to realizing god exists so it go, go something, perhaps something like this. Sean Powers takes a trip out West. I get on I-80 and I just keep going all the way to Colorado. And I finally get across the cornfields of Iowa, Nebraska, which will put you to sleep unless you got a lot of coffee, but you hit the mountains, right? And all of a sudden you're looking up, you're like, whoa, this is pretty amazing. And all of a sudden my thought is, who created that? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're kind of talking about? Like in terms of how we can reason ourselves there? Yep. He, I mean- that that would be like examining the the grandness of creation is one and then there are other ways that aquinas argued if you're if you're examining these things eventually even the even someone who doesn't believe who claims not to believe in god if they're objective if they examine creation if they're driving through the mountains and they're being and they're asking that question and they're being honest eventually they will re- come to the realization that there must be a god Mm-hmm. Uh, now Aquinas recognized it, it doesn't point him to the God of the Bible. Like it doesn't point him to the atonement or the Trinity. They, they need, they need the scriptures for that, but they, mm-hmm. but it does point him to the existence of God. Um, and, and that Aquinas argued that they, 
we're all born with natural law intrinsically in us. So we know right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Why do we know right from wrong? Right. And that, that, that combined with examining nature would lead a person to believing that there is a God and that the right from wrong that's inside of us came from him. So, so to kind of put a bow on this, um, on this topic of terms of total depravity. So we can hold, uh, I have a cold, dead heart and I'm unable to save myself. It requires something external, requires a God, a savior outside of myself in order to save my cold, dead heart. But my cold, dead heart doesn't mean I'm unable to reason in this world, un- right. unable to put together certain concepts, unable to, to, to discern right from wrong in one way or another. Now, I can't do that perfectly, uh, but that, that innate ability is still there. Right. Uh, but there are guys like Van Til come along and say, actually, Aquinas is wrong yeah. in that humans are born with the ability to reason their way to God. It's actually, humans are born immediately knowing that there is a God and they simply deny that, that truth, uh, suppress the truth. They suppress that truth. So Van Til would say, no, no, we're not born with the ability to reason your way to God. And you're not merely born with the knowledge of morality as Aquinas says, no, no, it's more than just the knowledge of morality. You're actually born with the knowledge of God himself. And then in your sinful nature, because of your depravity, you choose to suppress that. Mm. Um, and so that, that may seem like a slight difference, but it, it has some, it has some real, it has some practical differences in various areas of your life and ministry. So, can you give an example of some practical differences between the two approaches? The, the for Van Til, there's a lot of ones. For Van Til, the biggest one comes in how we do evangelism, mm-hmm. right? Parenting is another one that that guys have discussed. <laughs> um, but uh, Van Til talks about evangelism. He's just like, if I believe that someone who's not a believer they may have some inherent understanding of what's right or wrong, but they don't have an inherent knowledge of God, but the ability to reason toward God. That's Aquinas' argument. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them reasons to believe in God, yeah. and gonna, I'll, hopefully that's going to reason their way to God. I'm, I'm going to give them, and, and that's usually that's what's the idea of classical apologetics, the idea of like, I'm going to give you reasons for why there's a God. And kind of a lot of our apologetics in modern day American evangelicalism sort of believe, right? We're going to give you the evidence of why there's a God. You know, yeah, there's, there's God. evidential, there's presuppositional apologetics, basically. Right. So Van right. Til's in the presuppositional category. Can't right. He's in this other, he would say, when I'm doing evangelism, giving people a list of evidences is silly because they already know there's a God and there mm-hmm. is, they're denying it. I don't have to give them evidences for a God. They know that God is there. They're simply denying this truth. So actually what I need me to do is expose their willingness to deny the truth rather than give them evidences. And that, that has a very, those two approaches to evangelism are drastically different. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, can you explain um, how this is any different or similar to like general revelation uh, in our systematics classes? You, you're pick, we pick this up, right? general revelation versus special revelation. How does all this play out under, under natural theology? Yeah. General revelation. Uh, so real quick, if, if anyone doesn't know the differences, general yeah. revelation is what we can learn about God from nature. Um, so natural theology is in essence, the study of engaging in general revelation, looking for the things that have been revealed generally. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of the simplest way to describe natural theology. Special revelation is the information about God, we can only learn because God has specifically revealed it. And there, throughout history, there are various ways God has done that. But mm-hmm. those of us who live post-cross, 
in the New Testament church, the way God reveals himself is through written form, the Bible. Yeah. So you're going to hold those categories personally, general revelation versus special revelation. Um, we can also say, well, I think if we back up even more, this idea that God has revealed himself is extremely important. Man. Uh, it's extremely important. So the word revelation is actually quite monumental here in the discussion of natural theology. God has revealed himself in creation. What are some texts that you would go to, Kenny, to help point that out? Yeah. Um, yeah as I was going to pull up a couple of passages here. Side note, the idea that God has revealed himself to humanity, as you just said, oh is a... Rem- he was under no obligation to reveal. He didn't have right, to right. do that. Right. Like he, he, the, like the infinite God that we serve is knowable. Mm. Like he, he's made himself. No, it's just, that should be, it should blow our mind every time we can. Yeah, it, it right? should put you in awe, honestly. Like, every time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, cu- a couple passages of scripture that, um, that I think are helpful. Uh, Romans one, the apostle Paul says this kind of relatively, relatively well-known verse. Uh, for what for what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of pagans, uh, plain to them because God has shown it to them mm. for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Like, yeah, and it's this passage Van Til would actually go to to talk about how this, the truth has been suppressed. Yep. Like if he's using um, some proof text to, you know, to prop up his argument. He's actually going to continue to read Romans one and and show how humanity has suppressed the truth that God has revealed. Correct. That's one passage. I think just in general as well, like there are dozens, literally dozens of passages that command us to look at something in the Mm -hmm. nature, the natural world. Um, One of my favorite examples is a few uh, that I just love Matthew chapter six, Jesus is teaching. He is wanting to teach the character and nature of God to these people who are people who are listening and he says, look at the birds. The birds like, in the air, yeah. Like they're taken care of, right? Because your father in heaven makes sure they're taken care of. Mm-hmm. Aren't you more valuable than birds? Like, like the fact that birds are never hungry is the <laughs> evidence that God will take care of his people. Mm. And so we can learn about the character of God by examining how birds eat. Right? That's yeah. the... Um, we're, we're, that's good. We're doing a sermon series for the Sermon on the Mount. So maybe nice. I have you down for that passage. <laughs> uh, every time, I mean, like every time we're driving around, you hear birds chirping. Yeah. You should, you should think that's a reminder that God takes care of his own. Yeah. Amen. I think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day. He pours out speech night by night. He reveals knowledge. I mean, there are so many texts in particular, you know, pulling out Psalm 19 right there. There are several Psalms that really speak to and help us to understand what we mean when we say general revelation. Yeah. And you see how that's connected with natural theology. Go ahead. There's one other, this is, this is actually probably my favorite just because I think it's so funny. Um, I, I love the Bible I love so much. <laughs> Proverbs Proverb six, mm. right? he's, he's rebuking it. Like he's like, um, go to the ant. Oh, sluggard. Like the ant. Yeah. <laughs> like you, like if you're a lazy person, if you're a sluggard, here's what God wants you to do. Go find an ant. And examine the ant. And this is what the proverb says. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food for harvest. Like God is saying like, hey, you can actually learn how you should behave by watching how an ant behaves. Yeah. Just really a remarkable thing. Because God is saying ants, they think about the next season and they prepare. 
likewise, you should be thinking about the next season of your life and be preparing accordingly. Like the ant is not lazy. You should stop being lazy. So God's intentions and desires for humanity are, are intrinsically woven into or baked into the natural order of the world, even ants. Yeah. And we wanted to make a distinction here between like, say pantheism, like we're not worshiping the creation. Right. right. Um, and we're not in natureism, which is something a little bit different. Like the nature is going to be worshiped over here and pantheism is like God's in the nature. Right. So the, we're worshiping the creator who created all these things, right. Yep. Who created the universe, the cosmos who right. created the earth and everything that's in the earth. So uh, those are important distinctions to, to make when you think about, you know, God being creator and natural theology. So we see how general general revelation using that theological term helps us understand natural theology, but natural theology, does that speak into special revelation at all? And this is where I think a lot of people will have concerns. If you say you can reason yourself toward God, um, it's when you talk about um, special revelation. So you can talk about kind of the relationship between that and, and natural theology. If you, if there's a relationship at all. Yeah. The, the real, I mean, the relationship ought to be that natural theology, whatever we learn from examining nature needs to be governed by special revelation, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Meaning I, I can't look at a spider and examine something and then think whatever I think of must be true. Right. No, whatever I see in a spider, I might learn something. Now I go and I compare it to what I see in the Bible and that the, the Bible is the trump card, but the, I, I understand the world through the lens of the Bible. Right. not the other way around. And I want to right. be very careful about that. Right. And, and I think where I was trying to go is like observing nature does not save you, cannot save you. Correct. Right. So when I think of, I think we have maybe a slight difference of special revelation, how I understand it. I would take it more toward the revealing of Christ, um, okay. the power right. of the Holy spirit, not necessarily scripture. Uh, you know, it's more of the miraculous things like that. Uh, they, they obviously go hand in glove. But you can't be saved through general revelation, through a through a reasoning yourself toward God, right? Exactly. And I think that's really important. That's what keeps us away from some of these other uh, theologies or philosophies that exist. So I want to keep right. as you know biblical as possible. Only Christ saves, Christ alone. No, nowhere in nature am I going to learn that Christ died for my sins, mm-hmm. rose from the dead, and I am saved by putting my faith in Him. Like that's not taught to me by examining the natural world, right? That's taught to me by reading Romans and the New yeah, Testament. Right. That's right. exactly right. So I've, as I was reading your blog, my mind kept going to um, a lot of studying that I've done in the past on intelligent design. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you've gotten into that. Um, and, and here's, here's where I'm trying to go. When I, when I've studied intelligent design, it, the purpose of the movement from a Christian perspective is to point that a creator exists, right? It's an right. apologetic. I mean, it's, it's scientific, but it ends up being an apologetic. Right. And so I think um, the, this whole idea, one idea is of irreducible complexity. Like if you take the, the most simplest organism that exists, if you would take one part of that simplest organism that God has created, it would, it would cease from working. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, is, it, is that a good approach to understanding kind of natural theology and how that, how that dovetails into apologetics is by actually looking at the specifics of what God has created either through the lens of perhaps intelligent design? In our modern context, maybe, maybe utilizing intelligent design is not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's just not, it's still not in my mind. It's not the ideal. Right. Okay. Um, ultimately, and I, again, I'm, I'm not an expert on intelligent design. So I, I mean, but a lot of guys, even the Christians are a part of that are promoting the, the, the language of intelligent design. Their goal is to basically say there is a creator. Right. And I, 
I that's fine, but I want to push way. I want no, no I don't want to just push that there's a creator. I want to push that Christ is the creator. Right. And, and so maybe 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 it falls short. Um, and so to me, I want to utilize natural natural theology to show like that there is a creator that wants to be known. Mm, okay. Like rather than just natural theology tells me that there's a creator. Right. No, that's a good distinction. It's a, it's a difference to say, hey, um, through the ID movement that um, we can see the evidence that everything that, that exists in this world was created by something as opposed to a creator that wants to be known. I mean, those are massive. I mean, it is one another step that's really important. And he has made himself known. And that's where scripture actually becomes extremely helpful right? because it helps us to map on what we see within within creation. Um, what are the limits of natural theology? Like where, where can we go too far? And then it gets, gets into the, some of the concerns that maybe people have had regarding natural theology beyond Aquinas. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we can, we, we can start deducing things from nature that God did not determine for us to deduce. We, or we can, we can come to conclusions. Mm. Um, so, uh, I mean, in our, in our, let's get controversial, uh, you know, uh, yeah, so, baby, let's do that. So like, um, Christians will say things like, Hey, um, w- w- one of the natural reasons we would say same sex relationships, relationships are inappropriate is because we see two sexes we see mm-hmm. a man, men and women and mm-hmm. they go together. They anatomically fit. They, they make mm-hmm. sense. Well, then you have some people that would say, well, in the, in the, in the natural world, in the animal kingdom, we see occasionally animals, ma- male and male mm-hmm. engaging in sexual relations. So since that happens in nature, it must be good. And mm-hmm. therefore they can conclude that. Well, that's no, now you're concluding something that, that was not, that, that would, that God would not want you to conclude from that. Right. Um, ultimately when you divorce it from scripture is where you're getting into reading into you're going to get wonky. Um, and some people are nervous to like, even learn from nature, unless the Bible's like I mentioned birds in Matthew six, some people are nervous to even go outside of that. Cause they're like, how weird can you get? So mm-hmm. I, honestly, I, I, I didn't mention them in either one of my articles, but Jonathan Edwards used to do a lot of this. Oh Yeah. And, and some people go like, people think Jonathan Edwards made an argument that God created spider webs specifically to teach us how weak we are. You know, we, we, we build these webs in our lives to, this is going to be our source of food. And we watch a rock fall through the web and it falls apart so quickly. We realize how fragile our own efforts are. Like that's kind of the imagery. And Edwards would go as far as to say, God specifically created the spider web to teach us this about ourselves. Hmm. And some people are like, uh, Edwards, that feels a little too far. Uh, a little, <laughs> like, you don't have any evidence that that's exactly why God created the spider the way he did. Um, and some people are nervous to follow Edwards in that way because you can get really wonky really fast. Um, Edwards, though, was always thoroughly bibline, right? I mean, he, the guy would, you could cut him, he, he, he bled, yeah, Bible. bled Bible, the guy. Yeah. So like, I think the nervousness in some people is like, we're going to get wonky and we're going to, we're going to now de- start having conclusions that are just really strange and weird and are contrary to scripture and therefore going to lead us to believe wrong things about god um and, and ultimately that that's probably right there are limits that we're going to be very careful with yeah no it's good so let's say let's say um you got a your new father like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and um you're gonna parent and you want to parent her and you know kind of in the deuteronomy 6 in the ways of the lord but also there's you can be doing various things i don't know if you're an outdoors person maybe you like camping like like, how do you begin to show your children God in creation? Yeah. Like, how does natural theology actually practically work itself out 
for human beings. And let's take it, let's reduce it to a parent teaching a child. Yeah. I love this. Um, actually, I, I, there's a book that I, um, I read several years ago by Barnabas Piper called the curious Christian. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a good book, not a great book. Sorry, Barnabas, if you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> but, um, I didn't mention it either one of the articles, but he, he kind of promotes the idea of like, just be curious about things. So something as simple as, um, my dog is super loyal. Yeah. He's, and so my, 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 my daughter's 11 months old. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't speak English yet. So she doesn't speak anything. That's her language. And um, so, but like, you know, when she's two or three or four, you know, God willing, our dog is still alive. And, mm-hmm. and um, he's, you know, he's very loyal. And mm-hmm. I could say to her, Letty, isn't it cool that God gave us dogs? Mm-hmm. Like what, what, what must God be like that he gave us dogs? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, and she might say, hopefully God must be the kind of God that like wants us to have friends because he gave us dogs to be friends or something like mm. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what must God be like that he created, like that he gave humans the wisdom to come up with a thing called ice cream. Like mm. God must be the kind of God that like, like what, God, what, what kind of God gives you taste buds to taste sugar? Yeah. Like, like, I'm curious, like, what must God be like that he did this? He could have done it like this, but he chose to do it like this. Yeah. And I think having that conversation with a, with a four-year-old is, is get, starting to think about what must God be like that he chose to do it like this? What does that tell us about God? Isn't that amazing? Uh, you know, if, if we, God willing, if my wife and I have more children, we're, we're praying for more, mm-hmm. as many the Lord would give us. And uh, we would say, I would say, Letty, what, what, what is it like? You know, if you're five years old, you have a three-year-old sister. What must God, what must God be like that he yeah. gave you a little sister? Yeah. You know, yeah, totally. Absolutely. I, I do this with my kids all the time. And it, I mean, come to the point where like, dad, come on. But I still do it anyways, because I'm a dad. Uh, we live right outside our house or cornfields and soybean fields. So we're slightly outside of Des Moines, um, even though our church is in Des Moines, not too far. You can get anywhere in this area in 20 minutes. It's great. But anyways, sunsets are amazing in the West. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when it's a nice day and the sun's going down, I drag my kids out and uh, I said, what does this make you think of, you know, and we have conversations about God as the sun is setting. And so that's just a way you can show your children, look at God has created. And here's the other point I want to make, which I would like you to chime in on. God has made a, has made, made creation for us to enjoy. Yeah. And there's a hang, some people have a hang up with, with the kind of joy that we can enjoy these things that God created. Mm-hmm. So kind of comment on that. Like the, the, the importance of enjoying what God has created, man. Um, I didn't understand this actually. I don't think until I had a child, uh, mm-hmm. right? So this is this is natural theology at work. I'm watching <laughs> the nature of my relationship with my daughter, and I'm learning about the character of God, and I'm, re- I'm understanding it richer. Um, I want my daughter to enjoy things. Yeah, but dude, I, my wife, my my, my daughter uh, got this little Minnie Mouse, um, little stuffed doll. Mm-hmm. She loves this little thing. Yeah. I mean, when I pull the Minnie Mouse out, her face lights up every time. And I just want to give her the Minnie Mouse over and over and over again <laughs> because her face lights up. She's enjoying the thing. I love watching her play with the things. I love watching her put on the clothes that my, my wife loves to put on bows and you know, make her very girly and all those things. Like she loves this. I love watching her enjoy that. Um, and like, I believe that God is the same way. Like God has endowed. The reason I'm this way is because God is a father and he's made me to be like him. Yeah. And uh, God has given us these gifts because he wants us to enjoy them because our joy 
brings him pleasure. Right. And for his pleasure, I was made. Yeah. I, I was made for him. And if he says he takes joy in me enjoying the gifts he has given me, who am I to tell him he's wrong? Mm. And you know what this does when you enjoy something that has essentially been given to you? You have a heart of gratitude. Yeah. Like if you want to take theology into clear application of the Christian's everyday life, it's cultivating that heart of gratitude yeah. with the things that God has given you to enjoy. Amen. Like one of, the th- one of the ways I pray with my kids before dinner um, is, Lord, uh, we thank you for this food. May we enjoy it with grateful hearts. Yeah. You know, because it's, it is from the Lord. The Lord has provided for us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, that's really important because it, there's a lack of joy sometimes within, within Christianity. And there's a, a lack of understanding of like, how does looking at the Grand Canyon or this cornfield with the sunset, you know, connect to my joy. And it clearly does. And we gotta, we gotta, we gotta connect those dots in people's brains and in their hearts. Yeah. Uh, the, the enjoying things, whether it's ice cream or baseball or a sunset, like uh, God has given us these things on earth. And if, if we find our satisfaction in them, we idolize them that becomes mm-hmm. sinful. And those things that they let us down, they disappoint us. That leads us into a very emotionally unhealthy state. Mm-hmm. But we find our satisfaction in Christ. He has satisfied me. Well, now I'm free to enjoy these things. And if they don't quite bring me all the joy that I otherwise might have wanted, I'm, I'm still fine because I'm satisfied fully in Christ. This is all just icing on the cake, right? This, mm-hmm. And I get to enjoy it. And it shows me that God's the kind of God who loves me mm-hmm. and likes to enjoy the presence with his people he he he's the god who says enjoyment is ordained by god it's it was it's baked into creation enjoyment's a good thing and a great book by joe rigney one of my co-pastors uh and president of bcs it's called the things of earth where he Mm -hmm. i think in my opinion it's the best book i've ever read on this concept of how do you really enjoy the things that god has given us right and what's the alternative right to not enjoy it (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, that kind of exists. I think sometimes, you know, asceticism is the idea. Like there's some Christians that have this idea of like, you, you it, it, having fun is bad or enjoying things right. is, is wrong. Um, and it's all about self-denial. And of course we want to deny our sinful flesh and our sinful 100, desires. One thousand percent. Um, like that, like so, people, that means that all enjoyment, or we sort of have this idea, this sort of joke of like, you know, God said we can't have fun. Um, no, no, God, God did. God said, "Thou shalt not kill." Not mm-hmm. thou shalt not have fun. <laughs> thou shalt not have thrill. Thou shalt not thrill. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Like just sort of this idea that I think people think that God is just serious all the time. He is serious, and He's serious about our joy in Him. Yeah. Now we can say we we can say this that there are good things God has given us. So again, we can connect this to natural theology. God has created everything. There's certain things that we can enjoy that can become sinful. It Correct. becomes the object of our enjoyment, right? So I look at that Grand Canyon and all of a sudden I'm in awe of that Grand Canyon and not in awe of God who created it. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are, the, we, I mean, we always want to lo- enjoy things within the proper context of who God is and, and why, he's, why he's allowing us to enjoy things that he has created. And we can always, we, we always, we can twist things, right? God created, God created sexual relations for yeah, a man that's a great and example. his wife to enjoy we can so easily though, in our desire to enjoy this, twist it, pervert that. Mm-hmm. And, and now begin to in, try to engage in this in a way that was outside of God's design um, or be, drinking a beer. Man, I can enjoy a beer, but like the fact that if I drink too much of this, it's going to cause me to become drunk. 
that's God's way of showing me. I, I want you to enjoy this with a limit. Right. There's, there's something about the natural function of beer that teaches me about discipline. God wants me to enjoy things and to know how to be disciplined and say right. no to, to demonstrate self-control. Um, yeah, there's, there's no doubt we can take it too far and begin to twist or abuse God's gifts. Yeah. And, and humanity has been doing that since, I don't know, Genesis three, a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's been a long time. Exactly. Yeah, man. And yet God's been patient and kind. God is so, so kind. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right. Any final, any, any final thoughts on uh, that you want to say uh, regarding natural theology? Yeah. I mean, I think being a curious Christian mm-hmm. and looking for things and not just necessarily nature per se, but the natural function of things looking for, always asking, why do humans, I think about George Floyd, who was, mm-hmm. who was killed here in the twin cities, the yep. outrage nationwide. Ask, I ask myself, why are humans outraged that a police officer killed this man? Mm-hmm. What, what is it about human nature that knows that it's unjust for police to do certain things. Right. What, what is it about humanity that causes us to think about things a certain way? Why is there an outrage for justice? When the, why is it, most people would tell you it's worse when a police officer does it when a regular person, a non-law enforcement does it. Why, why do most people say that? Right. What is it about that office? And I think that it's not just nature, although sunsets and nature are great. Mm-hmm. It's the natural order and function of all things shout to us things about God. And if we're curious about those things, and if we think deeply about those things, it teaches us a lot about God and us and our relationship with God. Yeah. There's one more area that as you were talking, um, begin to kind of click in my head, you see, you see within natural theology and whether it's the sunset or sexuality, or, uh, you can even take it into, to, to, uh, natural law that God has got an order. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the way that the world was created, whether it's uh, how church should be done, go to First Corinthians fourteen. Uh, whether it's uh, sexuality, whether it's authority structures, God is a God of order, and within yep. natural theology, we see His order. And when that order is perverted, when it is abused, um, that's where we see clear sin, uh, and we see the rebellion against um, you know, natural theology or God Himself, right? So just another tidbit thought, you know, final thought, sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I, God is a God of order. And when you watch the natural order of the world, like the, it's, it's not chaotic. There is an order to, mm-hmm. to every function, every behavior. It's remarkable. Yeah, it certainly is. Even, even when I talked about irreducible complexity with ID within that there's order <laughs> and you, when you mess with the order, everything breaks down, yep. you know? So that's good, man. Hey, uh, before we close any books you're reading, you want to recommend? Or just books you're reading in general that you don't recommend. <laughs> I'm good with that. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> don't um, read this book. Uh, I'm a PhD student, so oh, I don't get to reading. pick what I read these days. But I've been reading a lot of. I've been hanging out with Carl Henry uh, okay. for those. He was a philosopher and theologian in the 1900s, and um, man, the the book that he that he wrote in 1947, Crossway. I think it's Crossway. They just came out with a kind of like an updated version of it, okay. uh, like a you know, 20 or whatever, 70th edition, whatever, I forget the, whatever year it is, but like they came out with a version of it, it just was released in the last few weeks. I think Russell Moore wrote the forward to it. Um, but basically it's like a, it's a, it's kind of an updated version of the, it's called the, uh, the conscience of a modern fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was, it was phenomenal. It was a short book by Carl Henry and just really like um, Henry was dealing with the, the, the divide between evangelicals and fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And he's basically yep. saying like, 
uh, or the sorry, the divide between fundamentalists and Protestant liberals. Oh, sure, he's like Machen. Like, what was that? Kind of like Machen with liberal. Yeah, yeah. so he he's a, yeah. he's he's kind of like in the line of Machen, and, and he's saying, listen, like the liberals are wrong in their theology, but the fundamentalists the fundamentalists are wrong in their disengaging from culture. Almost how application. Do we, yeah, how do we actually still hold on to our doctrine but engage with culture well? And so the the uh, the conscience of a modern fundamentalist, short, easy read. Uh, highly, highly recommend. It was written in 1947. It's just as applicable today as it was, you know, 70 years ago. Yeah, I, I read uh, Christianity and Liberalism by Machen. I don't know, maybe two years ago or something like that. And I'm uh-huh. like, I'm just reading it, and I'm like, okay, this is still happening, even though this was written in 1921. Yep, <laughs> yep. 100 years later, it's still applicable. Yeah, it's like nothing has really changed. Uh, that's a good book. Yeah. Carl Henry's fantastic. He's worth re- worth reading. I happen to be reading. I don't know if you've heard of this one. I just picked it up. It's called Discontinuity to Continuity by Benjamin Merkel. Um, I had him in class in seminary. That's not why I'm reading it, but the subtitle is A Survey of Dispensational and Covenant Theologies, which is actually really helpful. And it kind of lays out the land from dis- classic dispensationalism to something called restorationism. So it puts everything in kind of on a spectrum. And so you got, okay. yeah, so it, it's, it's showing the nuances between these various theologies and uh, I've really enjoyed it in terms of understanding some of those nuances. So it goes through classic dispensationalism, revised dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, then progressive covenantalism, covenant theology, which is where I'm at. And then uh, Christian reconstructionism and it kind of traces, he, he has some key questions for each group or each um, system of theology. Mm-hmm. And it says, you know, in light of what they believe, you know, this is where the differences are. So That's I've been good. helped by that. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a helpful book for anyone wanting to study eschatology too. Cause that would inform. It's funny you say that he doesn't touch on eschatology, but you, you see the drippings of eschatology all over it because you right. have to deal with one particular issue, Israel versus the church and, and how that relationship maps out in these various theological systems. Right. Cause that's got eschatological implications. So yeah, it's been a good book. I'm always in like three or four. I'm never in one. So I'm like a PhD student without the PhD. <laughs> Still in books. <laughs> My wife's in that boat. She's getting a PhD to put hubby through. That's that's the <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. All right, everyone. Thank hey, man. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for coming on again. I hope that was helpful. Um, and then once again, where can people people find you out online? Yeah, uh, theologyfortherestofus.com's website. And then I, I like to be on Twitter. So you can find me at Kenneth Ortiz. Tweet at him. Just mash at the tweet button. Just tweet at bring him. Bring it. Just bring it. He loves taking the heat. So, well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, if you want to mash at the button at me, I'm at uh, Sean underscore MS. Uh, no, DSM. I wasn't in the Twin Cities with you. Sean underscore DSM. That's where you can find me on Twitter. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. You can go to cornfieldtheology.com for all the latest blogs and podcasts. Uh, if you want to receive, emails from cornfieldtheology.com. You just go to the bottom of the page, put your email address in. I don't spam you. You just get the latest blog when it's posted. So uh, that's it. All right, man. Thanks again. And then until next, we're going to do this again, right? Absolutely. God willing. All right. We're going to fit. We're going to figure this out. We're going to get something on the counter so we can do this again. Love it. Thanks. Thanks everyone. God bless and peace out. Bye. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.